If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. And welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor, and I am joined this month by our features editor, Rob Attar. Hello. Coming up in this podcast. Well, I think we have a more subtle understanding of both the costs and the benefits of the Industrial Revolution now. That was Christine McLeod on the Industrial Revolution. Some people say that it makes a slightly different uh, tone to the bell, a special sound. It is a very deep baritone, of course. And that was Dr. Mark Collins talking about Big Ben. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later. Now, Professor Christine McLeod specialises in the history of technology at Bristol University. She has written the cover feature for the July issue of the magazine, examining how those people who lived through the Industrial Revolution saw it at the time and how that view contrasts with what we see today. First question, when is the Industrial Revolution? (laughs) (laughs) That's an extremely difficult question to answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Traditionally, it was between 1760 and 1820 or 1830. 
but um, historians really don't keep to those dates anymore. Um, those dates really go a long way back, and it was when people were first talking about the Industrial Revolution in the first half of the 19th century that they identified this great rise in manufacturing with the reign of George III, which ran from 1760 to 1820, very conveniently. But um, now we recognise that um, developments began long before then, that um, sort of social and economic changes and technological changes too, that um, we identify with the Industrial Revolution, really had their roots back um, in 16th, 17th, early 18th centuries. And that the impact of the um, Industrial Revolution, particularly of the technological changes, continued on much longer. So they really don't have an impact on the economy until the end of the 19th century. Um, for example, steam engines, which you always associate with uh, James Watt at the uh, 1760s, 1770s. In fact, um, the first working steam engine in Britain um, was installed in 1712 um, in the Midlands to pump water out of coal mines. And steam engines, on the other hand, really don't become um, economically very important as a form of power until really after the Great Exhibition. So it's really from the 1850s, 1860s, and then even more at the end of the very end of the 19th century when steam turbines start being used to generate electricity, that the real surge in steam engines um, appears, and before then, this much more mixed um, source of sources of power in, uh, and water wheels in particular remain very important and are developed in their um, the power that they can generate all the way through the the nineteenth century. So, should we not be talking about a revolution at all? Then, is it um, as some historians have argued, an evolution rather than a, a revolution? Well, yes, in terms of the, the length of time that it takes, uh, evolution is a, perhaps a more appropriate word. But on the other hand, in the great scheme of things, when you look at the whole of human history, then this is such a major development that even though it took longer than the 60 or 70 years that it was originally portrayed as taking, I think it's still quite useful to use the, the term industrial revolution um, just because it is indicative of, of the massive changes that, that followed because of the, the developments that occurred, um, particularly at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th centuries. And so when, when exactly was the term industrial revolution coined then? It's first coined in English uh, in 1882 by the historian Arnold Toynbee, who was giving lectures to the Working Men's Association in London, and he used the term Industrial Revolution. That's the first time that um, it was particularly used in English that we recognise, though I'm sure if you dug around you could find it in more obscure works, and certainly you can find it in other languages. So the French talked about la révolution industrielle um, as the counterpart of their political revolution right back at the beginning of the 19th century. And then Friedrich Engels, in his book The Making of the English Working Class, uh, he uses the term, but in German, and that's published in 1844. So the term is being used, and if you if you read French or German, then you'd be seeing it, but the English don't really use the term industrial revolution until um, the end of the 19th century. Okay, 
Now, um, we tend to have a view of the Industrial Revolution today, um, in large part, um, which had been, been given to us by historians over the last 100 years or so, that it was this period of the dark satanic mills when uh, pollution was, was rife. And, and it was uh, a time of change, but a time of, of great upset to the general population. That's, that's the view we have today. What you're saying in the feature in the magazine is that the people who lived through this period actually saw it as uh, a time of, of good in large part and that they had specific heroes who they, who they honoured as a result of that. Is that correct? Yes, again, that's something that's rather got written out of the record because the image of the Industrial Revolution that we've got very much comes from its critics. And in particular, I think, because the, the critics really had some very good um, expressive people on their side. So, for example, if you read Charles Dickens's Hard Times, then you're hearing about it from one of the greatest novelists of, of the 19th century or Wordsworth's poetry, for instance. So there's a very negative image that comes through in the literature and is picked up by the first generation of economic historians, the first generation of academic economic historians who were writing at the end of the 19th century. And because they were very concerned with contemporary conditions where they were very aware that there was still a lot of poverty and many of them were indeed socialists, they were very critical of what had happened and they were particularly critical because they felt that the, the working people really hadn't enjoyed the fruits of the Industrial Revolution. So for them it, it was negative. Um, they focused on the destruction of communities, the very bad social effects for many of the people who, who actually lived through the, um, the coming of the factories at the end of the 18th century. And um, so while those people's experience was mixed and therefore the workers themselves would have had very mixed views uh, depending on which factory they worked in and what the conditions were like it's undoubtedly the case that many people um, who worked in those early factories did have to work in horrific conditions for very long hours so there's there's a very negative Im image that comes through but at the time um, there's also many people who celebrate this rise in manufacturing as they tend to call it because for them, it's, uh, it's a recognition that this is a basis for increased wealth, that Britain is going to become a much stronger country because of the, the manufacturers that it's producing, the wealth that it's generating, um, and the tax base that then allows the government to um, maintain a much bigger, stronger navy and to defeat Napoleon. And they're also very excited about the technology. So particularly in the late 18th century, um, there's a lot of very romantic portrayals of, of new technologies. People are very excited about going and looking at new machinery, steam engines, um, seeing these new factories lit up at night with uh, gas lighting and all the latest inventions. And so they, um, for them, this is, this is something to celebrate. And so, yes, they, they do talk in, in glowing terms, in particular of the the leading um, tech, leading engineers, people like James Watt or the um, the entrepreneurs like Richard Arkwright and, um, and Josiah Wedgwood making pottery. And these, these these heroes who they picked on, they, they tended to be sort of become associated with 
specific towns or cities or regions, didn't they? How, how did that happen? Was that just because of their birthplace or was it, was it more than that? It was often because of their birthplace, but initially it was more because a particular town or uh, city appreciated that the industry that it had developed owed a lot to a particular man's invention. Um, so, for example, James Watt is, is born in Greenock on Clydeside and he goes and works in the University um, of Glasgow as an instrument maker where he makes his first great invention with the steam engine. Um, so both Greenock and, and Glasgow celebrate him, but also Manchester celebrates Watt, even though he never lived there, um, didn't work there. But in Manchester, where there were no fast-flowing rivers, where they could use water wheels, they'd really been made customers of Bolton and Watt for their steam engines. And so they recognised that without this power of the steam engine to operate their machinery, Manchester could never have become such a big centre of the cotton industry as it became. And so they, they really are great fans of Watt. So should we see the Industrial Revolution more in terms of a, as a, a regional um, creation than a national thing? Then should, should we consider it in terms of what happened around the country rather than trying to see it as a holistic British thing? I think that's a very good perspective because there are a number of regions in Britain where the Industrial Revolution was very much in evidence and other parts where people would have scarcely been aware of it. So... While one has been talking about sort of the evolution, industrial evolution, that's, that gives you a sort of a national perspective in which you get a sense of how long it takes for these changes to work through the economy. But if you'd been living, say, in Lancashire, where there was the cotton industry, or West Yorkshire with the woolen industry, or again up in Scotland with the, um, the cotton industry around Glasgow, or perhaps in South Wales for the uh, coal industry and the iron industry, or in Cornwall, where um, you know, it's very hard to think of it nowadays because Cornwall is so much a, a great tourist county. But for a long time, it was a great industrial county as well with um, the mining of tin and copper. And so in those regions in particular, and a few more, Tyneside's another one, for example, um, people would have been very aware at the time of very fast changes occurring. But if you'd lived in a much more agricultural county, um, somewhere like Berkshire or Buckinghamshire or in East Anglia, um, you really wouldn't have had much, so much of a sense of, of big changes happening that um, what was going on in the industrial parts of, of the country really would not have very much crossed your consciousness at all. Just just in, in conclusion, really, I suppose, on this, should we be lionising the Industrial Revolution a little more now? Should we, like the people who live through it, um, be, be harking back to these people as heroes rather than as the, the, the generators of this dark satanic age? Well, I think we have a more subtle understanding of both the costs and the benefits of the Industrial Revolution now. Um, it's undoubtedly the case that we are the beneficiaries of the Industrial Revolution and all the economic development that's followed on over the last couple of centuries, that undoubtedly we owe our high standards of living to it, we owe to it our increased life expectancy, um, we now on average live twice as long as people did in James Watt's day, and... Um, we have all other benefits of leisure, 
um, education that, that can be funded. So there's lots of things that we can say, well, we are wealthy because of the Industrial Revolution. On the other hand, we're now increasingly aware that it's the Industrial Revolution that is causing major problems of, of climate change, that it's with the burning of fossil fuels, which is very typical of the developments of the Industrial Revolution, that um, this great switch from um, a resource that was based on the land, one that was based on fossil fuels, coal and then oil, that that is now pumping out the greenhouse gases that um, are doing so much damage to our climate. Okay, and finally, if I wanted to go and visit somewhere around the country, somewhere where I could get an idea of of what the Industrial Revolution was like, where would you suggest I go? Well, there's a number of places you could go. Um, There's really good industrial museums that are scattered around the country. I think it's very difficult now for us to visit anywhere outside a museum that gives a a good flavour of what the Industrial Revolution was like because so many of the mills and the mines have have been swept away in the last 50 years or so. But you can go to museums like Ironbridge in in Shropshire um, or you can go to the Big Pit in Wales near Caerphilly or there's, um, there's the Quarry Bank Mill at Style near Manchester, which still has running machinery, and you can um, go and see them operating spinning mules, for instance. So there's a lot of places where you can go and see the machinery in operation, and you can see the sort of sites where it, it was being run and people worked. Um, the difficulty is that you're never going to get a really good sense of, of what it was like because everything now is, is very much sanitised for, um, for visitors, that um, you're, you're going to go and see the, the attractive technology, typically in now in an attractive country setting, and it doesn't give you a really good idea of what it was like to, to work in those mills. So, yeah, you'll see the technology, but you've really got to use your imagination to get a an idea of, of, of what it would have been like. OK, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. That was Professor Christine McLeod of the University of Bristol. Her most recent book, Heroes of Invention, Technology, Liberalism and British National Identity, 1750 to 1914, is published by Cambridge University Press. And her feature on this subject is in the July issue of the magazine, which you can buy in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.60. Even better, you can save money and ensure you never miss an issue by subscribing. We have great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas. Go to our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, for details. Thanks, Rob. Uh, let's talk history. Well, what three things would you suggest a history enthusiast gets up to this month? Well, first of all, what I'm going to be doing is heading over to the English Heritage Festival of History. It's an annual event that has loads of exciting reenactments, shows, living history displays, falconry, that kind of thing. Fun for all the family. It takes place at Kelmarsh Hall in Northamptonshire on the 25th and 26th of July. It is indeed a splendid weekend, and unless my wife is giving birth, I'll be there too, along with the rest of the BBC History magazine team. What else? Yep. Also this month, the Imperial War Museum is launching a special First World War exhibition based on the Horrible History book series. They're calling it Terrible Trenches, and you'll be able to find out about all the unpleasant smells and vermin and things like that, which the soldiers had to put up with during the war. It sounds marvellous, and that's uh, got the involvement of Terry Deary, who is the author of the very popular Horrible Histories series in it. She is, yes. And finally? Yes, lastly, this is one for some of our more youthful listeners. There's a history debating competition taking place next year for those aged 16 to 19. The Historical Association are running it, and they're looking for people to start entering now. If you'd like to take part or just find out more, you can call 020 5986 or you can email simon.brown at history.org.uk. They've got some great prizes on offer for the winners, including a subscription to our magazine. And Dave, I believe you're going to be one of the judges. I am indeed going to be helping out. It's a great project, so do get involved. Now then, it's 150 years this year um, that the bells of Big Ben were first heard around London. I caught up with Westminster Palace archivist Dr Mark Collins to find out more about the story. This year is the 150th anniversary of of one aspect of Big Ben. Um, so, Mark, what, what is what are we what are we celebrating this year? The main celebration this year is the connection of uh, the great clock uh, to the bells in, in the clock tower. Okay, and when I say Big Ben, am I am I right in thinking that's just the bell, or is it the whole tower? That's right. It's just the hour bell, in fact. Um, but it's become known, of course, as Big Ben in its entirety. So the tower and uh, the clock, even sometimes, as well. Okay, so it's 150 years since the since the bell was connected, um, but presumably the tower has a longer history than that. That's right. It goes back to well, it goes back to the destruction by fire of the medieval palace, which took place uh, in October 1834. Most of it was burnt down accidentally, and uh, so they had a competition to produce a new building uh, in the Gothic or Elizabethan style. 
And uh, at first, there were no proposals by either the House of Lords or the House of Commons to have a clock tower. Um, but Charles Barry, who won the competition, uh, decided to put two towers uh, on, the, on his building, uh, one at the southern end, which was to be the royal state entrance, and a smaller one at the northern end near New Palace Yard, and uh, that was supposed to be for the speaker's accommodation. But it didn't at first contain a, a clock. That came uh, with revision after he had won the competition. He revised his designs and made it much taller and uh, included a, a clock and bells and uh, a pyramidal roof as well. Okay, so it's a reasonably long time between 1834 and the and the fire and the 1859 and the bell being connected. So, was was there some wrangling going on for that um, that period in between? There was uh, uh, they, the site had to be cleared in sections. They couldn't build the whole thing uh, at once. And the first job was to build a coffer dam out into the river and uh, lay down a concrete raft for the, for the building to go on in, in different sections. This took rather longer than they hoped, and it wasn't until 1843 that the foundation stone for the clock tower was, uh, was uh, laid. Okay. And then there, there, was some, there were some problems in actually getting the bell into the tower, weren't there? Yes, uh, the tower had, had reached the, the um, belfry stage and it was time to um, commission the bells, but um, there were delays with, with the commission and so the roof was put on, which meant that there was only one way up for the bell and that was through the weight shaft. And this was a, a very tight, tight fit. The bell had to be turned on its side. It was such a very tall bell and a very slowly drawn up. On, on a specially made chain, it took about 30 hours to get it up there uh, with four men winding it uh, through night and day. And am I right in thinking that the original bell was cracked uh, before it could be, even be put in place? That's right. The first bell um, was brought down, it was actually made, uh, moulded in uh, Stockton on Tees, a small village outside uh, called Norton. And then it was brought down by ship and tested in New Palace Yard. And this is where um, uh, Dennison, uh, Edmund Beckett Dennison, uh, comes into the story because he tested it with a very large hammer and it uh, cracked after about 10 months of this testing. And who, who, who was Edmund Beckett Dennison? What was his role in all this? Edmund Beckett Dennison was called in by uh, the first commissioner of works because he was uh, a very brilliant man. He was a lawyer, a QC, and he was an expert in mechanical devices, especially locks and clocks. The two things go uh, hand in hand in, in uh, the mindset very often. And he was also an expert in bell casting. So he was uh, involved with that and with the, uh, uh, with the construction of the clock as well. Okay, so Dennison was testing the, the, the first bell in the New Palace Yard and, and, and he, he tested it basically to destruction, didn't he? He did, that's right. A very large crack appeared and there was nothing else to do but to um, take the pieces. It actually had to be broken up then, which took a while, and then uh, the pieces were taken to a a different foundry, this time to the Whitechapel Bell Foundry uh, in in East London. And it was um, remoulded, slightly smaller, about 13 and a half tonnes. 
And this time it was taken uh, up the tower. It, it was passed by Denison as being satisfactory. Okay, but then, then the, the wretched thing broke again. Again, uh, it was it was tested uh, to, with a, a much too large uh, clapper. Denison said that it was actually the fault of the foundry for not producing a perfect casting. Uh, and George Mears of the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, the proprietor there, said that it was Denison's fault for using a, a large, too large hammer. Right. So it was sort of a, a surprising tale of incompetence then. It was, uh, it was incompetent, but I think they were, they were pushing themselves to the limit, both with the accuracy of the clock and, and with this very large bell, the biggest bell that had been cast in this country uh, ever. So uh, it, it was a kind of um, uh, a new era uh, for the country, industrialised, uh, and they wanted something efficient, an efficient, capable timepiece and bell to go with it. So in 1859, we, we get the, the, the great clock starting on the 31st of May and the great bells chimes heard for the first time on the 11th of July, I believe. Um, it, it, is that the same sound that we hear today or have things moved on since then? It is the same. Um, the, once the second bell had, had cracked, uh, there was a gap of about three years while they wondered what to do, whether to take the bell out, which was very difficult, of course, because the, the, the clock was in the way by that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so they decided, uh, uh, at the suggestion of the Astronomer Royal, Professor George Airy, uh, to turn the Big Ben about a quarter of a turn so that the clapper, uh, the hammer, wouldn't strike it in the same position. And uh, this was done and it it turned out to be a satisfactory situation from 1863 onwards um there there haven't been any uh, problems with it at all so it is the same sound that you hear uh, with the westminster quarters the quarter chimes first of all right and the and and the great bell with that with that cracking which has been turned slightly to one side now so that's nothing nothing further has happened to that since the crack hasn't expanded or anything like that nothing at all no it's it's been uh, quite satisfactory all in all these years some people say that it makes a slightly different uh, tone to the bell a special sound it is a very deep baritone of course um, but otherwise, no, no trouble at all. Have there been any other sort of dangers or problems for the for the for the tower or the bell in the in the intervening 150 years? I mean, what happened uh, during the Blitz, for instance? The Blitz was uh, uh, on the last uh, serious night of the Blitz, May the 10th, 11th, 1941. The clock tower was struck uh, by uh, a shell at the same time as the House of Commons was destroyed nearby. Um, but the clock continued working without right. just losing a very small amount of time uh, and it wasn't until 1944 that the shock of that that uh, air raid um, probably led to the uh, breaking of a very small spring uh, on the pendulum and so it had to be fixed in 1944. Okay before I let you go I suppose actually uh, we ought to just find out uh, whom the Ben is after after which Big Ben is, is named. Do we know what why it's called so? Well, officially at the time, it was said to be uh, Sir Benjamin Hall, who was the first commissioner of works at the time that the bell was cast and put into the tower. But uh, the other story is that um, Ben Caunt, a prize fighter at the time, uh, was also called Big Ben. 
so it's it's probably most likely to be uh, Ben Cornt if if the men in the foundry uh, gave it its name. Right. Okay. Well, Dr. Collins, thank you very much. That was an interview with Dr. Mark Collins, the Westminster Palace archivist. You can see more about Big Ben in our latest issue. And we'd love to get your feedback on the podcast and the magazine. To help us canvas your views, we've set up a reader's panel. It's very easy to become a panellist. All you have to do is go to www.bbcmagazineinsiders.com and follow the instructions you'll find there. We do find that panel very useful, so I would be delighted if some of you did join up for that. So that's it. Thanks as ever for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Our second slice of history this month will be live from the 16th of July. And on that, we'll have features on the medieval petitions to the king and the career of Galileo Galilei, the legendary scientist and astronomer. I do hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, uh, please do have a read of the magazine if you can get hold of a copy. I promise you, it is quite good this month. <laughs>